feel in the love this morning. It's cool to see you guys just fellowshipping together. You know, I, I can't remember the scholar who said it, but he said, the greatest proof, right, the greatest proof for the Christian faith is the power of a changed life. The greatest apologetic for the Christian faith is the power of a changed life. That's what we've been hearing this morning. So appreciate not only leading us in worship, but telling your stories. And uh, so thank you. And, you know, I was just thinking about that, even in light of the horrific news coming out of Israel in the last 24 hours. May that be our prayer, too, like that the Holy Spirit would just invade and change lives on an individual basis um, in light of what's happening around the globe. Um, that's really what we're about this morning. As we look at the book of Acts, something from the first century, and we begin to think about it in our context today. So I want to open with a, a kind of a question for your own reflection. This isn't a poll, but uh, what's the best movie sequel you've ever seen? You know, we think about movie series or franchises, I wonder what comes to mind. Two that, that immediately occurred to me that kind of rate high on the uh, interwebs is... Uh, both of the Lord of the Rings sequels to the, to the first movie. And I know that the, the movies did not closely follow Tolkien's books, uh, yet were done really, really well. Another one that rated really high that would be on my list as well is the first sequel in the Star Wars series, Episode Five, The Empire Strikes Back. And, um, you know, who could forget Pixar and all the sequels that they've cranked out? Um, Toy Story is rated very high, and I think they're on Toy Story like 17 or something. Um, but just, you know, they do those movies so well. I want you to kind of think in terms of sequel this morning as we open the book of Acts, written by Luke, as we'll talk about in a moment. Luke is a literary sequel uh, or Acts, rather, is a literary sequel to the Gospel of Luke. It's a continuation of uh, Luke's testimony about the life, teaching, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and then what comes after. In fact, our big point this morning, really thematic for the whole book, is that the work of Jesus Christ did not end with his bodily resurrection and ascension into heaven that the work of Jesus Christ continues to even to today through the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's kind of the, the big thrust of uh, the book of Acts. But I want to say something uh, explicitly about Acts and the scripture in particular this morning, um, especially if you're new, kind of exploring uh, who God is and who this Jesus is. Uh, you may not know this. Some of you would be aware if you were here when we opened this building that underneath this platform, buried in the concrete, is a Bible. And part of the reason that we did that symbolically is also connected to the fact that our name as a church is Groton Bible Chapel. And that is that we believe that the scriptures, that the Bible is the word of Almighty God to us about who he is and who we are, what he's done, what he expects. And so we study it as such. And in a world that's continually uh, saying that the Bible is all kinds of other things, we say it is the, the word of God and it's the foundation on which we stand. So Dr. David Jeremiah said this. I love the way he says it. He says, the Bible is the word of God, whether we read it or not. It is the word of God, whether it means anything to us or not. It is the word of God, whether we feel anything when we read it, whether we even understand what we are reading. The Bible is God's word and nothing can change that. So as we pivot from a, a topical series into looking at a book of the Bible, that's our, that's our mindset openly as we preach, uh, Zach, myself, and others, uh, that's, that's our approach. And so with that in mind, I think it's appropriate for us to invite the presence of the Lord and the Holy Spirit to guide us as we learn. So let's pray together. 
Our God and Father, we come to you this morning um, expectant, Lord, leaning into what you have for us in your word in the book of Acts today. We thank you for its history. We thank you for um, just what, what we learned from this narrative document of the scripture. But Holy Spirit, would you open our minds and hearts to receive, uh, even on a supernatural individual basis, how only you can do this, to receive that word of encouragement or exhortation or even rebuke or challenge that we need week by week in what we begin this morning. Holy Spirit, would you be our teacher and our guide? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to begin this morning with just the first three verses of the book of Acts. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to try to do two things this morning and um, try to keep it clear for us. One, we're going to look at those first three verses and, and pull them apart a little bit. It'll be probably a little bit lighter than what we would normally do in a, a deep dive on, on three verses, because at the same time, I, I also want to look at the whole book of Acts and kind of set us up for, for what Acts is in, in a way that we can kind of um, anticipate what's coming and maybe even refer back uh, to this morning. So let's begin reading Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. It begins, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So begins the book of Acts. And again, we'll look at these verses in a little more detail. But uh, our three big uh, attempts to just not necessarily points this morning, but the three movements we're going to look at are number one, we'll get some, some facts about Acts, so to speak. And then we're going to look at the, kind of the foundation of Acts, which points to its structure. And then we'll look at a framework for Acts, or it's probably better said, uh, some lenses through which to view Acts. But I picked framework because I needed another F if I was going to alliterate my points. So um, bear with me. Uh, let's begin just with some facts about Acts. Number one, we believe that uh, it's pretty um, obvious and clear from the scriptures and even outside of the scriptures that Luke, uh, the dear physician, as he's been called, uh, was the author of Acts. Luke was a traveling companion of Paul the Apostle um, and wrote the Gospel of Luke, as we've already kind of hinted at. And what's fascinating about Luke as the author um, is that he writes a detailed history. And we'll, we'll kind of point to how that helps us with the date. But the audience to whom Luke writes is one of the clues to his authorship. He begins, uh, dear, uh, essentially, Theophilus, with this unknown person to whom he writes this, this account, this narrative account. Six times in the Gospel of Luke itself, uh, Luke refers to himself as the author. And then if we trace the usage of the book of uh, Acts throughout the early church, we see that all the way into the third and even early fourth century, the early church fathers um, affirmed that Luke was the author of both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Even from a, a stylistic point of view, the writing style is, is very similar, and so on and so forth. But the, the historicity of Acts is, is a fascinating uh, thing for us to look at in terms of the date of Acts. We believe that Acts was probably written between A.D. 60 and 63, somewhere in that, uh, in that area. And, and here's why. Luke is the preeminent historian uh, among the New Testament authors, maybe the most preeminent historian in the whole Bible, although I think you could make a case for Moses uh, as well. But Luke, as a for instance, uh, Luke includes uh, place names. He includes uh, names, specific names, details, and dates of the reigns of several political figures. 
But it goes way beyond that. It includes uh, topographical information uh, about the, the events and in, in the parts of the narrative he writes about. Um, he includes weather and climactic details and cultural elements and nuanced details that you would have to be from that area and be an eyewitness to. Um, and he does all that on purpose. Now, in, in our day today, that helps us to actually verify, at least from a historical standpoint, that the Bible is actually is, is accurate. And it's a, our Christian faith is a reasonable faith. Luke is a part of that, uh, helping us understand that. But as far as the dating of Acts, what that points to is this earlier date. And here's why. Luke doesn't reference at all. He doesn't even mention the persecution of early Christians by Emperor Nero, which began about AD 64. He doesn't mention the death of Paul the Apostle, one of the, arguably the most important figure of the early church in AD 68. And there's no mention of the fall of Jerusalem to the Roman Empire in AD 70. It's just based on his level of detail and thorough history. And the fact that he doesn't touch on these major events uh, indicates it's pre-AD 64. Much more we could say on that. There's um, even more fascinating things, both internally and extra-biblically. But suffice it to say, we have Luke writing this book probably somewhere around AD 62. But what is the function of Acts? Interestingly, Acts, which if you're new to the Bible, is the fifth book in the New Testament after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Its longer title is the Acts of the Apostles, has this bridge-like function, helping us to get from the narratives in the Gospels and, and Jesus' uh, life and testimony and death, burial, and resurrection to the letters of Paul and the other apostles that come a bit later. Uh, it was J. Vernon McGee who said that Acts serves as a ladder upon which the epistles or the letters in the New Testament can be placed. It's a great study technique, if you're interested in studying the book of Acts, to read Acts along with Paul's letters and to kind of superimpose the events uh, that you read about. But uh, also functionally, we get from verse 1 an understanding of the aim of this book. It says, I'll read it again, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. The word began is important here uh, because what it indicates is what, what Luke's gospel, gospel tells us about all that Jesus began to do and teach is then intimated that in Acts, all that Jesus continued to do and teach, the risen and ascended Christ. Remember our big point. The work of Christ on earth did not end when he rose, uh, rose to heaven or ascended to heaven. Rather, it continues through the church today. We talked about Acts being a bridge uh, from the Gospels uh, to the letters of Paul. Well, that brings us to the foundation of Acts. As, as we think about its purpose and we get to verse 2, we see that there are two things that happen in the establishment of the early church that are kind of indicated right in the text in verse 2. It says this, Until the day he was taken up, speaking of Jesus, after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit, to the apostles he, has cho he had chosen. So from Resurrection Sunday until Jesus' ascension, 40 days, Christ himself is giving instructions to the apostles through the foundation of, uh, for the foundation or the inauguration of what we know today as the church. Not just the local church, like Groton Bible Chapel, but the big C church globally, beginning in the first century all the, all the way to today. And secondly, we see that the Holy Spirit is the guide to that process. So you can look at it this way. The apostles are the foundation 
uh, deputized is probably the wrong word, but set up as ambassadors in the foundation from Christ, and the Holy Spirit is the guide and the power through which that's going to take place. That, that's the function of the book of Acts. And as we come to the foundation, uh, we're going to peek ahead to verse 8. And verse 8 is really the theme verse of the entire book of Acts. It says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses, the Greek word here interestingly is martyr, to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And there's actually this geographical progression or spread of the gospel outward, beginning in the city of Jerusalem all the way out to the, to the known world, uh, to the ends of the earth. We'll look at that in a little more specific detail. But this actually serves uh, as an outline for how Luke writes the book. The first one, uh, chapters one through seven, uh, follow the work of Jesus Christ by the apostles through the power of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem and in the, in the immediate area surrounding the city. And then in verses, or chapters rather, 8 through 12, we see the work of Christ by the apostles through the power of the Holy Spirit in the surrounding area and all the way out to the region of Samaria. And then the latter chapters of the book, we see the work of Christ by the apostles through the power of the Holy Spirit all the way to the, to the ends of the earth or the known world at the time, in the center of the world at that time, namely Rome itself. Uh, one scholar said that Acts could be called the road to Rome as the gospel spreads, again, geographically from Jerusalem all the way up to Rome. Now, this, um, this verse, in addition to being thematic to understand the, standing the structure of Acts, for many, many churches in the modern West and, and really around the world, Acts 1.8 kind of serves as a missions strategy verse. Even here at GBC, we use this as mission strategy, right? We do the work of God, but also proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, starting in this building, in this campus, and then in our community, in the local area, and through some of the outreaches we do, and into New England, and, and um, even our recent work at Washington Street Baptist, and historically at places like His Mansion, and Greater New England, and Work Camp Northeast, and on and on, and then nationally and globally. That is an intentional strategy that comes right out of Acts 1, uh, verse 8. It also can apply to my life today as we think about application of this, this great book. How, is, how am I proclaiming the Lord to those that God has put right in my immediate sphere? But how am I also personally involved in the work of, of proclaiming the gospel in the region and so on and so forth? One way we heard of in terms of partnership is through our relationship with the Dalton Teen Challenge and what God's doing in another part of Connecticut that no one knows how to get to or where it is, apparently. <laughs> so those are some facts and the foundation of Acts. I want to look at the a framework for Acts. We're actually going to look at a, three frameworks, if you will. Um, but I want to kind of pause here because we're talking about facts and foundations, and then we look at this framework, um, you know, particularly following the series we were just in, if you've been with us. We were in a series that's very topical, and it's super, it's like the application is right away. It's in, we're talking about my budget, we're talking about food, talking about entertainment choices, sex, we're talking about all these like things that are very easy to apply to my life. It can be very dynamic. And maybe as you sit here this morning, you're going like, facts, you know, figures, foundations, like, Okay, well, let me, let me use this illustration to try to help us understand, A, what we're, what we're trying to do today, but also kind of how I want you to be thinking over the next several weeks. So walk with me through this illustration. 
Imagine an archaeologist and his or her team that, that want to understand an ancient culture or civilization. And in order to do so, they have to begin by digging. And oftentimes in archaeology, the digging starts with heavy equipment, right? Uh, bulldozers and excavators that remove topsoil. And pretty readily, the, the structure of a town or village or city, or whatever it might be, uh, begins to be unearthed and you can see uh, walls and so on and so forth. And then smaller tools like spades and trowels are put to use, often by hand, very meticulously. And it gets all the way to the point where at the, at the end, it's actually delicate brushes or even low-powered electric blowers. And only then are the artifacts kind of drawn out of the earth and, and placed in, in, uh, in a place for both exhibit and examination. And oftentimes those artifacts will seem completely trivial or unimportant to the larger project. But when an expert archaeologist and or their team enter a room and see the display of all the artifacts they're unearthed, all of a sudden they're able to take all those pieces, even the insignificant ones, and draw an understanding of how this people lived and worked, raised their children, how they died, and most importantly, what we can learn from them. It's, that serves as a little bit of a metaphor for what we're doing this morning and really what we'll do, especially when we're studying a narrative in Scripture, is this morning, as we look at the framework in just a moment, we're kind of like doing the early digging. We're just getting a sense of the layout and the structure of what's beneath the surface. Maybe we'll pull a couple of those significant artifacts out and examine them. But as we go week by week, some of the things that we're just going to hit at a high level this morning, we're going to brush those off and really look look deeply. That's sort of our target this morning, that this perhaps might even be a, uh, something we refer back to later. So let's look at the framework for Acts. And we'll do that by looking at verse 3, the final verse of our passage for this morning. It says this, Luke writes, after he had suffered. Now we need to pause there because if you're new to the scripture, what, what Luke is referring to is the death of Christ. Christ's sacrifice on the cross for your sin and for mine. Jesus Christ, as our brother Isaiah shared, who was the sinless son of God, who died the death that I and you deserve to die in our place. And Christ on the cross suffered the very wrath and judgment of God Almighty in himself instead of me. That's what Luke's referring to, Christ's death for us. He says, he goes on, he says, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. This is a really, really important verse, and particularly that second half, when we, especially when we echo what we've been saying earlier about the accuracy and the, the historicity of, of Luke as, a, as an author and a compiler of information. Because here's why. When we look at the Bible and we, say, we see all the detail of Luke and we say, hey, the Bible is valid historically. We do not get to divorce that from the theology of the Bible. And to say, well, the Bible's historically accurate, but I don't buy the theology. No, that's not where Luke starts. Luke says everything that he's going to uh, articulate further in, all the detail that he brings to bear as he talks and tells the story of Christ in the early church, is rooted in his insistence that the cross of Christ and the bodily resurrection of Christ are historical themselves. Such that he says, Jesus went around for that 40 days with many convincing proofs. Luke's saying it's historical and it was proven uh, historically. By the way, if you, again, if the scripture is new to you and 
you're studying it or if you're just a note taker this morning, uh, Luke chapter 24 and 1 Corinthians 15 give us some of that uh, account and some of that teaching from both Paul and Luke that, uh, that Luke's talking about. So with that in mind, the cross and the resurrection are historical. And everything else that Luke says that is also historical stands on that. Uh, and so one car, uh, scholar that, that um, I was exploring in, in my prep over the summer for this message, I. Howard Marshall, he kind of lays out uh, multiple triple themes that we can see through uh, the book of Acts. I want to just cover three of them. Two of them we'll do briefly. One we'll do a little deeper dive. And these are um, revelations or these are uh, themes that come from Acts as we study it and read it, the entirety of the book, about the church. So the first set is three revelations about the church in the first century that apply to us today. And then we'll see three antagonists against the church in the first century that apply to us today. And finally, we'll look at three lessons to the church in the first century that apply to us today. So let's look at three revelations. Number one, quite simply, Jesus created the church. Jesus created the church. The origin of the church, and we're talking about the big C church, the, the uh, united company, as Zach talked about, of those who believe in Christ the Savior and Lord, was not instituted by culture or creeds or councils or popes. It was Christ himself. We see that in Acts 1 verse 2. Right, that he, Jesus, gave instructions to the apostles, setting the church on, on the foundation of the apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ created the church. Number two, Christ is one with his church. Again, uh, kind of reinforcing our first point, Jesus' work on earth didn't end when he ascended to heaven. No, he is one with the church then and today. And Paul spends a great deal of time on this in Corinthians, particularly chapter 12 of the, of the first letter to the Corinthians, talking about our historically, or our um, horizontally, horizontally, easy for me to say, uh, union as believers in Jesus. We are one because we are vertically one with Christ. Christ started the church. He is one with the church. And thirdly, he sent the church, or to say it another way, the hands, feet, and mouthpiece of Jesus to the world then and today is the church. I'll say it this way, there may be people in your sphere that you are the only Jesus that they may ever come in contact with. The church, not a building, right? The church who is a people are sent by Christ. So Christ created the church. He is, the one, he is one with his church and he sent the church. More we could say on that, but let's move to the next uh, triple theme here. And I want to spend a little bit more time on these three. Three antagonists against the church. Again, just by way of reminder, these are things that we'll see throughout our study of the book of Acts. We're just kind of hitting them at a high level right now. But we can draw application for my life today. And one of the things that we looked at um, in the last series, again, of these really practical teachings, Acts, is, as you'll see even next week, Acts will speak to us about very practical things, uh, what it means to be a worshiping community of God's people, generosity and truthfulness, prejudice and justice. We're going to see all these themes hit. But let's look at three antagonists. The first one is this, prejudice. Right away, as the church begins to form in Acts chapter 1, we see in the book of Acts, particularly the unbelieving Jews, uh, come with a, a whole host of, of prejudices against 
different groups. And, and the book of Acts confronts religious, socioeconomic, and ethnic prejudices and sets this theme in place that God draws together an uh, eclectic and extremely diverse group of people. Remember, we're moving from, uh, from ancient Judaism that was absolutely exclusive to the new beginning of this church that is multi-ethnic and hits every socioeconomic strata. Like, and God does something completely new when Pentecost happens that we'll look at in the next couple of weeks. And so Acts confronts my prejudices. It's part of what, what Brandon was talking about last week. You know, in this particular case, thinking about who are those people that I sort of prejudge as being less holy than me or even unworthy of, of coming to faith in Jesus or that it's impossible or whoever it might be. Within the body of Christ, who are the people? Because God calls together people who if it wasn't for Jesus, we wouldn't hang out together. So who are the people in the church that I need to spend time with to understand the great beauty and diversity of the church in terms of people that look differently than me, have different cultural expressions than me, maybe believe certain things about the world and their worldview that are different than me? What is it that God might be calling me to? What are the prejudices that I have that the gospel ultimately leaves no room for? Someone has, has challenged me uh, this week. I was telling a story uh, a couple weeks ago. We were at, um, my wife and I were at the 40th celebration for St. John's Christian Church. And uh, St. John's is a historically black church, and GBC uh, was even less ethnically diverse than we are today. We're very much a Scotch-Irish Anglo church. And we used to do these combined baptisms when I was a kid. And you couldn't have, they were on Sunday nights, you couldn't have a more uh, starkly different expression of worship when we would come together. And I was talking to St. John's, it was their 40th celebration. I said, you know, we would, we would sing our hymns and, you know, kind of like this. And I said it like this. They said, and then all y'all showed up. <laughs> and, and, you know, for me personally, I don't know how it was for everybody there. I was a young boy. It was never uncomfortable. It was beautiful. And it was a picture of eternity. And Acts confronts all this in us. Challenges are uh, us to step out of those comfort zones, see the beauty in, in, in the body of Christ. So more we could spend there. But uh, suffice it to say, the root issue uh, with this prejudice antagonist is ultimately it's a lack of trust in the Holy Spirit. It's a lack of trust in the Holy Spirit that he knows what he's doing and he's got a plan. It's not about me. Again, more we could say there. Let me move to the next one. Uh, second one is personal agendas. We'll see in the book of Acts, personal agendas, and a couple examples from the book are the story of Ananias and Sapphira and Simon Magus. These are people who come uh, and, and sort of apprehend the gospel or, or utilize the church for their own personal means, and Acts confronts that directly. Uh, last year, I read the autobiography of uh, Philip Yancey, who's, who's getting older in his life, the great Christian writer and thinker, and I'm currently reading Eugene Peterson's uh, memoir. And I was fascinated to read in both of their younger life, in their early days of their faith formation, that this, I, this personal agendas thing in the generation ahead of them was a real roadblock to their own faith formation. For Yancey, who grew up in the Deep South in the 50s and 60s, it was the blatant racism in his own church. For Peterson, who grew up about the same time, it was very different. It was a um, shallow, uh, um, it was pastors that would travel through that were entertainers and were very shallow in their theology. And he, it gave him a bad impression of what a pastor was, that they would use the churches for their own ego and, and um, personal gains and so on and so forth. 
confronts to my dear skeptic who may be in the room or online, who struggles with the hypocrisy of Christians at times. Acts confronts our hypocrisy very, very directly. I think it was Gandhi who said, I like your Christ, I'm not so sure about your Christians, or I don't like your Christians. Acts, as we study it, is going to challenge some of those things in us. Where do my personal agendas cloud my ability to see what God is doing? Let me give you a really personal example of this. I think one of the personal agendas that I could be very tempted in, and for the most part have not embraced is this idea when my kids are smaller that they need to project a certain image and even set of behaviors because they're PKs or pastor's kids. And, and such that if I projected that on them in an unhealthy way, instead of coming forward with their own sinfulness and brokenness and choices that they made were not the best, they would hide all that, right, to keep, to keep an image. That would be a personal agenda for them. That might be your personal agenda just if you're a Christian family, never mind being a, a ministry person. And if I embraced that personal agenda, I will tell you some of the most powerful moments of parenting and, and intimacy within our family have been through confession and repentance and restoration. That's a really nuanced and specific example, but you get the idea. What are the things that I come to church and I come to my walk with God uh, that are personal agendas that I need to yield and to surrender to the Lord? For many Christians, they're really about serving themselves and not the Lord, and we need to guard our hearts against that. Third antagonist is pride. And uh, we'll see two examples, at least, of this near the end of Acts and two different rulers, Felix and Herod Agrippa. Now, the gospel most clearly from the, through the entire scripture confronts the sin of pride, the issue of of my pride. In fact, Paul says in Philippians 2, he lays out the example of Christ so clearly. He says, if ever there was a human being who had every right as the sinless son of God to exalt himself, and yet he did not choose that. In fact, Christ didn't just choose humility. Listen, he chose humiliation. You know, oftentimes when we talk about uh, what Christ did for us and, and its implication for us, if I'm going to be his follower, we're good with humility, but Christ was humiliated. He was naked on that cross, publicly mocked, spit on, his beard ripped out, ridiculed. And oftentimes, I'll be good for, for humility, but I am not going to humiliate myself for the sake of repentance, restoration, whatever it might be. And Acts will challenge that. It will challenge the notion of our pride. The root cause for this particular antagonist is a lack of obedience to the Holy Spirit. It's a lack of obedience to the Holy Spirit. And so one of the questions I've been asking is, uh, where is my pride uh, stood in the way of what God wants to do in my life? Uh, could I perhaps push it a little bit this morning? I really want you to wrestle with your ambitions in life. What are the things that perhaps is a, is a goal, some goals that are good, but others that become an issue of your pride or achievement? And I have these struggles too, right? We all want to be honored and respected and so on and so forth. But could it be there's a, there's a promotion that you say no to so that you have more time to, to be a kingdom parent or to serve here in church or whatever it might be? Could it be that the vacations that you take could be less so that you can do more for the kingdom? 
And those are both sort of in the realm of, of, of career and, and uh, material wealth. But there could be a host of areas that maybe we need to think differently. And we've kind of agitated some of that through the Stay Out series. But what are the things that are really about the giantess of my ego, if you will, over what God wants to do? And that brings us to the last three things, three lessons for the church from the book of Acts. These are things we'll see throughout our study again. Number one, the church's passion must be the glory of God. Church's passion must be the glory of God. Beyond uh, the glory of GBC or our reputation in the community, as we do missions, beyond the relieving of suffering, which is important, the glory of God needs to be our greater target. Number two, the church's governing principle must be loyalty to Christ. Loyalty to Christ. Beyond our own uh, um, sense of uh, vision or calling, uh, and what we feel God wants us to be, or what we feel we want to be, rather. And that includes building projects. That includes goals for, for uh, our staff, projects that we want to take, missions, endeavors. All of that is subject to loyalty to Christ first. And we need that reminder. Let me say it this way. It would be easy in today's day and age to compromise the gospel for the sake of something new that, that we could do. And a great example of that is what Teen Challenge shared with us today, that not cho choosing not to receive government funds that allows them to also not compromise the gospel. The church's governing principle must be loyalty to Christ. Number three, and I've kind of touched on this already, the church's power must be the Holy Spirit. Must be the Holy Spirit. It's, it's not self-confidence that the early church deployed into the known world with. It was God-confidence. And so whether you're facing a particular uh, sense of conviction that, that God is calling you to jump into a new ministry or even just to share your faith with that person you carpool with or sit next to at work, or you're, you're facing the mountain, uh, a mountain of grief because of someone you lost or the unknown over, over a lost job, whatever it is, there is power in seeking what the Holy Spirit wants you to do, being open-minded and open-handed. Remember these three antagonists. It was a lack of trust in the Holy Spirit, a lack of yielding to the Holy Spirit, and a lack of obedience to the Holy Spirit in these three areas. Might we be a people, and I want you to just kind of, um, as we come to a conclusion here this morning, I'm gonna ask you to uh, really submit yourself to to following the Holy Spirit's lead as we endeavor to this series. But one illustration, and then, and then I'll close. Um, we're in our second year of running the re-engaged marriage ministry here at GBC, and already we've seen the Lord do amazing things. And our leadership team is a wonderful group of people with healthy marriages, and um, they're, they're educated and bright and passionate about this ministry, and we've done training all summer. And yet as we stepped into the curriculum this week where it starts to get, the gears are really grinding, some of the hard relational work of doing marriage ministry. In our leader meeting before the session this week, there was a sense of, of uh, trepidation, of, of nervousness, of inadequacy, and perhaps even fear. And so, you know, just as a team, we reassured each other about, you know, we've, we've done the work, we're prepared. God has called us to this. He placed each leader in each group. But even more than that, probably the most important reminder was from the scripture that the Lord says that the Holy Spirit will lead you, that he will give you the words to say, 
that this is his ministry. It's not dependent on our experience or personality or charisma or any of those things. And such is also true for our uh, role as a church. Remember our big point. The work of Jesus did not end when he ascended into heaven here on earth, right? Christ's work continues to this day through the local church by the power of the Holy Spirit. So as we close in prayer this morning, I want to ask you to bow your heads this morning. And if you're comfortable, I want you to just kind of put your palms out in front of you, kind of open uh, in front of you. And, And I just want to ask you to pray this prayer to the Lord as we step into this series. Lord, help me to be, to trust your Holy Spirit through this series. Father, help me to yield and to surrender my will to whatever you want to challenge me with to the leading of your Holy Spirit through this series. And Lord, I commit as I trust in you and as I yield to you that I will obey, that I will do what you lead and convict me to do as we study this amazing book of Acts. In Jesus' name, amen.